Our reading this morning is from, again, the fourth gospel, Gospel of John, page 886. We'll be reading this time verses 14 through 18. The bottom of the last page, you see a, a short outline. And out, actually, we're going to deal with flesh and glory this morning. And they're going to be pretty mixed, as you'll see, because you have to talk about them both at the same time. And then next week, we're going to consider uh, grace and truth. We're actually taking the two outside verses, 14 and 18, and then next week, we'll, we'll do the inside verses. Keep it all nice and neat in your head, okay? But let's read then, after describing the Word as God and the Creator of all things and having come into the world, been rejected by the world, but many received Him and became children of God, only now does He finally say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, bless us that we may, that, that our hearts will be open to see the glory of Christ afresh, to see his majesty and Lord, to see your love demonstrated through Christ, this glorious revelation, Lord, of who you are in the person of Jesus Christ. May we be comforted, strengthened. May we be changed. Uh, may we grow in his grace. May those who have never believed in him, Lord, put their faith in Christ. We ask this that you may be lifted up and glorified. Amen. Okay, kiddos, our words are four words this morning. It's harder to remember four, but I felt like I had to have all four. Reveal, it's going to be pretty obvious. Then grasp, you know, we had grip last week. Now we've got grasp this week. Surgery and tryst, tryst, T-R-Y-S-T. May raise a few eyebrows, but we'll get to it. If you're visiting with us, as we've said the last few Sundays, we've been working through John chapter 1. This verses 1 through 18 is the prologue, uh, regularly called. Prologue, of course, introduces what is to follow. We call it a precy, which is a summary. And a precy actually gives you tastes of what's to come. Like an overture in a music musical, we said, you have snatches of all the songs that you're going to hear in the music musical, but 
you hear them all uh, gathered together at the first. And so John is giving us this little preview, this little taste over to her of what this whole gospel is going to be about. Basically, John says in this prologue, look, the God who made all things, he took flesh, he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. He made God known to us. That's what he's saying in this first chapter. Then he also says, and here's an amazing thing, he was rejected by those he came to, especially his own. And you see people maybe reacting that God revealed himself, we saw him, and it's like, that's amazing. Yeah, but there are people who rejected it. No way. And so the rest of the book is John basically saying, okay, I'm going to tell you that some of the things he said and some of the things he did, I want to get your take on it. I want to see what you think about this Jesus Christ. The prologue could be entitled The Reveal. Um, we've seen reveals in a lot of ways on all the competition shows, right? It's a singing show or dancing show or uh, design, clothing design show or surviving show or cooking show. And one way or another, it all comes to that last show when usually, as, as happens in The Voice, you wait two hours of all kind of other things, and finally, the very last seconds of the show, the reveal of who the winner is, right? Well, Christ is the great reveal. That's what John begins with here. Verse 18 basically is a summary of the whole prologue, and in a way, a summary of the whole of this gospel that no one has seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. He started with the one at the Father's side in verse 1. The Word was with God. And now he says, this one who is with God has made him known. So the title there is God Becomes a Human Being. You could add a, a colon and say God Becomes a Human Being, the Great Reveal. And first we're going to look at flesh but we have to look at glory uh, almost at the same time when we see this statement in verse 14, he became flesh, dwelled among us, we've seen his glory. The veiling in flesh or the, the, the taking on flesh became the occasion of seeing the glory. Now there's a line in one of our, our great hymns, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Godhead means Trinity, Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. But veiled doesn't mean hidden. Hidden in flesh, the Godhead see, or, or covering in flesh, or wearing a veil that, that covers your face. Then it would read, veiled in flesh, our God concealed. <laughs> but veiled means clothed in flesh right? Clothed in flesh, the Godhead see. The flesh isn't the means by which God's glory is concealed. The body, the flesh, the becoming human being is the way the flesh is revealed to us. 
But we're, our regular language is kind of, he was clothed, he was clothed. You couldn't really see, because we're thinking of, you know, the glory of God. Well, the writers are thinking of the glory of God. And they are saying, it burst on the scene in his flesh. What could that mean? In that sense, you see, you might think the, the, the uh, line could read, unveiled in the flesh the Godhead see, or revealed in flesh the Godhead see. The flesh, as scholars say, is the medium of the glory. The flesh makes it visible, this glory, to all people. When he says we beheld, we've seen his glory, uh, this is not used of visions. John is speaking of the glory that was seen in the literal, physical Jesus of Nazareth. We saw it. Since he came in lowliness, this is an example of the paradox that God's true glory is to be seen not in outward splendor, but in the lowliness with which the Son of God lived for people and suffered for people. That's the breaking out of the glory of God, that he became a human being to live for people and suffer for people. It's not as though we look around his flesh in spite of the flesh, we see his glory. That we ignore his flesh so that we can now see his glory instead of what he became. It's that his glory is revealed in becoming a human being. It's not alongside him. It's not behind it. It's to be seen in it and nowhere else. I know I'm belaboring a point, but it's important that we understand this. He was made known by, be, by being made flesh. Let me review for you. I know it's familiar to some of you. The passage in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul is talking about the same thing John is talking about. Right? Talking about one who lived before time and who became flesh. And Paul is using this passage right after saying to the people of God in Philippi, you need to count one another as more important than yourselves. He says, you need to have the mind that Jesus Christ has. Or some translations say, we have this mind that was in Christ. But at least this, you need to have the mind that was in Christ. Because since he was God... He didn't hold being equal with God something to be grasped. That is to hold on to it for dear life and not lose it and not suffer and not give it away. But he says he didn't hold it as a thing to be grasped, but he poured himself out and he took the form of a servant. He became a human being. So he could have grasped on to his privileges, his comfort, you might say, and not pour himself out for others. But he didn't do that. He counted others as more important than himself. So basically Paul is saying, you need to be like God. 
and count one another as more important than yourselves because that's what God does. And he says, he not only did that, but he, he goes on to say, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a shameful death of a criminal. So he did not hold on to what he had, but he poured himself out lavishly for the sake of others. He became a human being to restore us to our original purpose as human beings, to bring us to a final new glory in the new earth, to be forgiven of our sins, to be restored to God, to destroy all curse of sin. And so in that way, you see the incarnation, his becoming flesh is a manifestation of who God is, what he wants for his people, how far he will go in his love to win his people for himself. And I like to think of Gethsemane as a kind of final opportunity for Christ to grasp because he's in Gethsemane in the garden the night he was betrayed and you're familiar with the prayer oh lord may this cup pass from me may i not have to endure this cup and so in that sense we get the full absolute humanity of christ a full human being he's looking at the horror of crucifixion and a crucifixion we can't imagine in bearing the sins of the world and he shrank back from it as a human being. And he earnestly was saying, if, this, if there's any way this could not happen. And yet his next prayer was, but I'm here to do your will. So as a human being, he made a full human choice at that point. I will submit to you. I will bear the sin of your people. He could have grasped, couldn't he, at that point and said, I can't do it. I won't do it. I'm going to preserve myself. I'm going to hold on to my safety and my well-being. But he didn't. He spent himself lavishly. He gave himself away. That's the revelation of how glorious God is. And it's more glorious than his revelation in creation or his deliverance of Israel or all the miracles of the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea. Nothing like this revelation of who God is. Leon Morris, a great scholar of the last century, it is part of John's aim to show that Jesus showed forth his glory not in spite of his earthly humiliations, but precisely by means of those humiliations. Supremely is this the case with the cross. To the outward eye, this was the uttermost in degradation, the death of a felon. To the eye of faith, it was and is the supreme glory. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians, the cross is an offense. But to us 
who'd be given eyes to see it. It's the power of God. It's the glory of God. When Jesus is raised from the dead and enters into heaven, when this same John sees Jesus in heaven through a vision and sees how he's praised, you may recall, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb who is there in the midst of the throne. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Do you see this, brothers and sisters? This is how God is forever defined. He's the God who became the Lamb. That's how you know him. That's who he is. That's what will be proclaimed from now on. He's the God who is the lamb. The one on the throne is the one who sacrificed himself as a lamb. That's how he will be remembered. That's how he will be honored. This is his great honor. The son glorifies the God in his death by showing what kind of love God has for the lost world. So, the more suffering, the more glory, the more degradation, the more glory. The glory is the glory of this one who has suffered, and they're inseparable. His exaltation at the right hand of God is the perfect, the appropriate, the only response to the glory of what he did on earth, you see. It's the reflection, the, the exaltation of glory at the right hand of the Father is the reflection of the glory he made, uh, he shone forth on the cross. And so the same word that Jesus uses in John several times to say, to speak of his death and say, I will be lifted up. It's the same word in Acts of his being lifted up to the right hand of the Father. You just can't separate them out. They're both, in a sense, a kind of exaltation of the glory of God. And one has written this, the suffering of Christ is a painful exploratory surgery to discover the infinite health of God. The suffering of Christ is painful exploratory surgery to discover the infinite health of God, or perhaps we could say the infinite heart of God. Then in verse 18, we learn several things to just layer on top of this revelation, which he became flesh and we saw his glory. And you can't really tell in the English, but when it says of the only son from the father, it's really the same word 
the only, but the word God is added in verse 18, but the one and only God or the one and only Son, speaking of the same person. And as John says, no one has ever seen God. In all the revelation of God in the Old Testament, it was really not the revelation of God in, that, in this final wonderful sense. He made himself known in countless ways in creation and the history of God's people in the Old Testament. But these are all smaller, smaller, excuse me, smaller, partial pencil sketches of this grand and beautiful Rembrandt that now covers the whole wall in the person of Jesus Christ. All of God's presence in Israel and in the Exodus and the wilderness and Mount Sinai and the giving of the law and the tabernacle and then the temple, all of that was just temporary and incomplete, simply anticipations of his real dwelling with us in flesh forever. And so by saying in the literal word, he tented among us, he dwelt among us, he tented among us, he's indicating that all other manifestations were just hints and teasers and previews, movie trailers, but this is the grand opening itself, the true presence of God in our midst. And it's so in that way, John can say, he explains God for the first time. In the Son, we see things about God that we never knew. For years, I've liked the uh, off-the-wall humor of Stephen Wright. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Most of you perhaps don't. But he has these disjointed statements have no relationship to each other and they're just kind of like the far side as a comic, right? Uh, but he, he will say, for instance, this one, I have a map of the earth. It's life size. I know it kind of grows on you as you see. What would you do with the life size? Anyway, and I want to say that about Christ. His revelation of the Father is life-size. It's the full view in that sense. As Jesus was able to say, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Hadn't seen some of the Father. Hadn't seen, you know, a shadow of the Father. You've seen the Father. That's an amazing statement. You see me, you've come into direct contact to see who God is, who the Father is. You've seen the Father. He has made him known, he says. He's explained him. He's declared him. Luke is the writer of the two books, Luke and Acts. It'd be neat if they were the, it was, the, it was John, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, right? And then also, Genesis start in the beginning, and the beginning of the New Testament would start in the beginning. But that's, I digress. Um, but Luke, Acts great place to start reading the Bible if you have not read the Bible. But he wrote them as a pair. One is the account of Christ and the other is an account of Christ's church in the early years. And five times there, he uses this same word explain 
as they're telling the story of something that happened to them, usually in a missionary context, like they were, did you know, mission work and then they came and told people about it. Well, that's the same word here. As Jesus comes to us and I have a report about God and it's me and it's what I do and it's what I say. It's who I am. He is the report. He is the explanation. He is the revelation himself in his own person. And he's told the whole story about God, a complete explanation in essence of who God is. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And it's such an intimate revelation, isn't it? He says, the one that was at the Father's side, this has the word bosom in it or chest. Uh, And you have in some translations, he dwelled in the bosom of the Father. But it's more like this. He was into or unto the bosom. And NIV is good here. It says he is in closest relationship to the Father. Closest fellowship with the Father, another translation. Near to the Father's heart. So the idea of intimate, eternal fellowship. It indicates how much they're one. Something Jesus talks about over and over. My Father knows me and I know the Father. The Father is in me and I'm in the Father. The Father and I are one. No wonder if you see me, you've seen the Father. This one who's been intimate with the Father forever fully expresses this one. No one else could do it. No one else has ever do it. The real revelation of the real God. He makes known to us the deepest treasures of God. Trist is a word that Kay and I like a lot within marriage. It's an arrangement to meet, right? Especially one that's private or secret, especially one by lovers. Hence, husband and wife should use this term a lot. Happily, a tryst, a meeting place. And in the Old Testament, you might say that the meeting place, or it was called, in fact, the tent of meeting, the place you met with God in the tabernacle, or the the temple then became the place you meet with God. That's where God gave himself to his people. It's where he manifested his glory and his goodness. He made himself available to his people. And there, Psalm 34, 8, in thinking about the meeting place of God, says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And Opposed to what people think Puritans are like, John Hutchinson, a Puritan, speaking of the incarnation of Christ, he said, the Son of God in becoming a human being is the trysting place wherein sinners may draw near to and meet with God. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Jesus Christ is the trysting place 
where we meet and embrace passionately the God who came to us in Christ. He's not, he can't be met anywhere else, friends. You're not going to meet God anywhere else except in the trysting place of Jesus Christ. Because it's there that you see who God is. It's in his flesh and his sacrifice. That's where you see who God is. And those who come to him, he doesn't need anything from you. He meets not to receive from you. He meets to pour himself out for you. He doesn't need your fullness. You and I need his fullness. And we'll get to more of that next week. Of his fullness we have received. And I urge you, if you're here and you don't know Christ, don't ignore, especially in this season where we're celebrating his showing himself in Christ, don't ignore him. Don't run for him. You know, the beginning of our sin in Adam and Eve was not believing in the goodness of God. That's what Satan did. He said, you know, he told you that you'll die if you eat this tree. You're not going to die. No. He's just put a scarecrow up for you. You know what's really going to happen? You're going to become wise like he is wise. And he knows it. And he wants to keep the God Club exclusive. He wants to keep his privilege exclusive. So he scared you away from this thing that if you get it, you'll have it all. What did he plan in her heart? He, he doesn't have my best interest at heart. He doesn't really care about me. He's just protecting his turf. He doesn't love me. I can't put myself in his hands. I don't know what the evil one has done in your heart if you haven't trusted Christ. What thing he's lied to you about. But you know what the essence of it is? You don't trust in the goodness of God and you don't want to put your, hand, your life in his hands for him to do whatever. To forgive you, to change you, to teach you, to lead you. I would make the case that in revealing himself through Jesus Christ, in counting you as more important than himself, he is a God to be trusted. Let us pray. Lord, give us grace. Even with all we've said or thought about, even with all that your word says that I've tried so feebly and failed in so many ways to say, we still won't believe it if left to ourselves. I won't believe it. I never would have believed it. None of us would believe it if left to ourselves. We're that set on living for ourselves instead of you and instead of others. 
O Lord, work in hearts by your sovereign power and shine into their hearts the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.